Misfit Toys. Welcome to episode 642 with my guest, Emmy Neatfeld. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the stuff in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas and sexual dysfunction to everyday compul... I don't know why I pronounce two that way. Two everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. Probably pretty obvious to 99.9% of you, but on the odd chance that there's somebody who is like, I think, I think this guy's an expert. I am not an expert, but I do have a lot of experience with uh, all this stuff that we talk about. So um, with that said, welcome. Kick your shoes off. Find, find a beanbag chair to your liking and enjoy the black light. This episode with uh, Emmy, this this interview, I mean, the one, it was intense, the interview from last week with uh, Christine Kimmel, and uh, I think, I think if you enjoyed that one, you're going to enjoy this one as well, because this one is another uh, childhood roller coaster. Um, I don't know, I'm just, I'm so fascinated by people's ability to survive, as they say during the March Madness uh, basketball tournament, survive in advance. It, it, it's amazing the shit the children can endure, but it seems like, like it's 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 like a trauma is like a relative that you think was out of your life, and then it just kind of knocks on your door in your twenties or your thirties. It was like, oh, did did you think we were done? <laughs> I'm still in your life. Let's read some surveys. This is from the Voice in Your Head survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Agonizing Ash. What are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? That I'm weird, different, I don't fit in here. That the world doesn't like people like me, the movers and the shakers that aren't satisfied. That everyone who loves me leaves whether they want to or not. That I'm destined to be alone and live in this cycle of frustration, neglect, and unhappiness. That I am unloved and uncared for and that I'm too complicated to comprehend. Boy, those sound like the greatest hits of a lot of us, a lot of our negative self-talk. I don't know about you, but there is something really freeing when I find out that somebody is, is as fucked up as I am. Not that I want them to be that way, but it just makes me feel less alone. I mean, hell, that's why I started the podcast. Continuing, this is from the Ask Paul Anything survey, and Patrick asks two questions. One... Uh, what do you think of a Patreon subscriber's submitted survey reading uh, with background ambience music? I think that's a good idea. And I think maybe we'll, I got to figure out logistically how I would launch that on Patreon. Maybe I would just give people a link to submit because they would need to submit um, audio somehow, or some type of MP3 file. Um, and so I don't know if it would be a voicemail message or them reading uh, a survey or part of a survey, but that's a that's an interesting um, idea. And you know, it's funny with the the topic of my support group meeting tonight was complacency, and it's one of the things that I battle because I fear the unknown. I fear change. I think anybody out there that has a doomsday machine 
in the middle of their brain is afraid to try things that are new. Uh, yet we long to not be bored, to be stimulated, and it's so hard to have both at the same time. So as I'm reading this idea that you have, I intellectually say, yes, that's an interesting idea. And then there's something in my stomach that goes, it's going to be too much to handle. (laughs) And as I say it out loud, and this is why support groups help me, is I realize how ridiculous it is for me to feel overwhelmed by the thought of something that probably not that many people are going to fill out. And I never imagined, oh, there's probably going to be uh, one or two that are, are going to be really beautiful and, and touching, and maybe I'll get to put some of my music underneath them. Never think about that in the moment. I just immediately go to the place of, well, you're going to be revealed as a terrible person who's incapable of juggling more than one thing at a time. So, yeah, fasten your seatbelt and get ready to be revealed for the fraud that you are. <laughs> Uh, And then the second question that Patrick has is, uh, couples counseling for a first date, good or bad idea? I don't know. That sounds a little... uh, Are you talking about the the couple who was on their first date going to a counselor after the first date or before the first date in which, I don't know, that sounds, sounds a bit premature to me. So I don't, I don't know. Um, it sounds, I'm going to be honest, that sounds unnecessary. Uh, I feel like if you need to go to counseling within the first month of a relationship, maybe find another relationship. Is that, is that hot talk? Is that a little too saucy? Any comments to make the podcast better? Just makes me happy to know that in some way, somehow my Patreon subscription allows you to have that lovely morning cup of coffee wherever you are. Uh, whatever you are into and all the resulting good feelings that start your days. You deserve all those good feelings for all you do. Thank you, Paul. Well, thank you, Patrick. That means a lot to me. And um, the uh, we still need help on, on Patreon. Um, BetterHelp has been a great supporter of the podcast. They're cutting back a little bit on the frequency of their uh, advertising. And uh, they're, as of right now, today, uh, what is today, May 4th, I have no advertising on the books uh, other than the BetterHelp ads. And uh, it's thrown me into a little bit of uh, some financial fear. And I hope this isn't coming across as being manipulative or playing on people's feelings, but I'm asking for for help with with Patreon if there's a way... um, that you can donate for as little as a uh, dollar a month. That would be awesome. And if not, I totally understand. I know a lot of people are really suffering financially. And uh, I totally, totally get that and would not want to put any added pressure. But anybody who can afford it, who gets something out of this show, I would love it if uh, if you could do that. Um, oh boy, do I hate, I hate doing that. And I think that's, um, that's one of the, that's a great example to me of one of the things where complacency, because I've been meaning to say something along those lines. And I have a couple of times in the maybe two or three of the last 10 episodes, um, 
But every week it comes around. I turn the mic on. I'm getting ready to record. And I was like, you should really say something about Patreon. We, you know, uh, and then I don't because it just makes me so uncomfortable to feel the vulnerability of saying, I could use help. I could use help. So there it is. This is from the Body Shame Survey, and this is filled out. And by the way, uh, it's patreon.com slash mentalpod. This is filled out by a, a gender unknown person who identifies themselves as, uh, calls themselves Frankie. And they write, I like that I'm lithe. I love that you use the word lithe. Uh, I like that I'm lithe. Is it lithe or lithe? I'll get back to you. But think that if I were bigger, I'd like that too. I like my newly slash slightly sagging breasts and my beautiful feet. And that sometimes my hands look like a pianist's and sometimes like a farmer's. I like the way my butt looks and cheeky underwear. I like that I'm su- subtly muscular and olive-toned. I like my Russian eyebrows and how my lips are sort of full. I like that I'm naturally athletic and androgynous. I don't like the dryness of my skin, strawberry nose no matter how many blackheads I remove, my thinning hair that truly tests my gender queerness. Guess I'm not that much of a dude if I'm this devastated by balding. And why? Ca- oh, I know a lot of dudes that are devastated by balding. They may may not speak it out loud, but uh, and why ca- can't I have uh, the kind that makes all the hair fall out so I look like a sexy robot rather than the avuncular fryer kind? God damn it! I love that you not only used lithe but you used avuncular. Uh, I dislike that I'm rarely and extremely sensitive to medications, psych and non-psych, and doctors don't believe me. I dislike the dark hair on my toes and legs that got there from shaving from ages 8 to 18. They remind me of internalizing sexual objectification and look unnatural to me. I don't like that my mom signed off to get my pubic hair lasered when I was 16. I want my bush back. Now that's a t-shirt. I don't like that I lose weight and muscle so easily and that it took me a year of intensive, deliberate diet and exercise to gain 10 pounds. I also don't like how that probably comes across as bragging to a lot of people. I don't like that my back hurts all the time because some lady wasn't paying attention on the road and hit my car. But she posted something really cool on Instagram as she was doing it. I don't like that I need a massage every day to feel calm. I don't like that my body had to be the kind that boys and men sexualized to a pulp when I was a child. I don't like that my body is full of trauma, but I do like my body. I do. I like that one. Thank you uh, for that. I I like the complexity uh, of that. I'm just drawn to complex stories. There's nothing like losing yourself in a drama or even a comedy where you think the character is all, you know, good or all bad. And then something comes in that's really organic. And you're like, wow, I I completely misjudged this person. There's this other side to them that I never considered. And that's why I, I think a lot of us are fascinated by serial killers is we kind of yeah we're attracted to the darkness but i don't know about you i'm also attracted to knowing the humanity in them 
especially maybe before they were traumatized. Like, what were they as like as kids? Were they pathological right out of the gate, or were they kind of sweet kids that got hammered into the state that they're in? I don't know. I'm just and people and people who are really, really entitled and and get arrested and they're resisting arrest like how how dare you arrest me because I'm not wearing a mask right underneath the sign that says you have to wear a mask and they always do the same thing when they get put in handcuffs that then they start crying like babies as if this is being done to them you know as if having to be manhandled was was something that they couldn't have avoided. There, there was this video on YouTube. I've watched it several times now. This woman is driving 106 in a 30-mile-per-hour zone. The cop pulls her over, walks up her to her window, and she cracks it. And he says, ma'am, step out of the car. She's like, no, I don't have time for this. It's just, of course, it ends up 15 minutes later, you know, with her on her face on the ground with her hand in handcuffs after, you know, the... Just telling her, hey, here's what's going to happen if you don't get out of the car. You know, I'm going to have to. And, and it's just, it, it it's just fascinating to me how people cannot see that. There was another another video of a guy, he, uh, he had assaulted someone at a park. And so this cop shows up and, and the guy, and the guy's eating a banana. And the cop says to the guy, um, yeah, we just had a report that you assaulted someone. Um, I need your name and identification. And the guy with, still with the banana in his face goes, I'd like your name and your identification. It's like, oh, this is, this is not going to go well. And they're just always so shocked that they can't talk themselves out of it. I don't know how I got off on that tangent. I apologize. No, you know what? I don't apologize. If you resent me for that tangent, go fuck yourself. It's been a while since I did that. Yeah. That, that was a white hand glove. Go fuck yourself. Yeah, I had a butler standing behind me when I executed that one. Fucking top notch. This is a happy moment filled out by Frankie, our friend Frankie again. And they write... Uh, I found it hard to connect with people at work due to what I suspect is undiagnosed ASD slash Asperger's and after trauma that left me isolated and abjectly quiet for years. There was a workplace bully who targeted me and she quit so I've been trying to let myself relax in her absence. The other day I made a physical comedy joke that expressed my humor more authentically something I felt incapable of under the stress of the shitty, truly narcissistic co-worker. I swear, if you're autistic or something similarly odd and well-meaning, certain people can't stand you. One of my co-workers laughed really hard at my joke. I thought, maybe I can have fun again. I love it. I am such a fan of, obviously, the light, but the glimmer of light. That, to me, is almost better than the light. The little twinkle this is from the fear survey <laughs> filled out by a woman who calls herself addiction can go fuck itself. And she writes, uh, and by the way, I ate in an entire uh, medium-sized pizza about two hours ago. So if you suddenly hear me snoring, uh, please send an ambulance. She writes uh, to the 
question, share something you fear. She writes, I fear that I will never be able to get sober again. I had a few years of sobriety and relapsed about a year and a half ago. My fiance slash boyfriend slash whatever this is, is also in recovery. We both struggled the past few months to get sober. It feels like I want to get sober, but he doesn't. I could be wrong, but there have been a handful of times when I was fighting for my sobriety, got a couple of weeks or months together while he was stuck in his full-blown addiction. I want to add that he also runs a treatment center. That is sadly not that uncommon. There are a rash of horribly run uh, treatment centers and sober livings. And uh, I think documentaries have been put out, especially in uh, Florida. There was a ring that got busted of them encouraging people to relapse so they could again milk the insurance company of the uh, of the client. Um, that's where it's good to know people who have long-term sobriety and are connected in the recovery community. So they may have recommendations of a sober living or a treatment center. Uh, one that is great out here in Los Angeles is called Cry Help. It's a not-for-profit one, and it's spelled C-R-I-H-E-L-P. And I think it's one of the best ones in the nation because they don't tolerate people's bullshit. You break the rules, you're fucking gone. Untreated addicts and alcoholics need consequences sometimes to see the light, to see the twinkle, as it were. Uh, the recovery community is so small, I feel like I can't speak up because my connection to this treatment center. He's remained silent about his relapse, but I actually chose to get honest about it about a year ago because I wanted my sobriety back so badly. Fucking good for you, man. You've got to put your sobriety above everything else in your life. You know, there's a saying that if your sobriety doesn't come first, and this is just for people who, you know, who are addicts and alcoholics, if your sobriety doesn't come first, you will lose everything that you put it ahead of. Um, he has not been open at all. I set up three or four interventions. I realize I can't control other people, unfortunately, LOL. But this all feels so sticky and heavy at times. We live together with our kids, have a house together, dogs and all things. At times where I just give in and say, fuck it and drink with him. It's because it ends up being easier to just cave instead of fighting it. Sounds like a cop out, but it's true. There have been times where he pressures me to drink when he knows I'm trying to be sober and it makes me mad as fuck. It's hard because I understand that he's stuck in his addiction as well. I know that at the end of the day, we have to want to get sober. I fear that I will have to either end our relationship if I want to get sober or I'll just end up stuck in this cycle of addiction. Then I tell myself that if I leave, I'll probably not be able to stay sober and just end up in another toxic alcoholic relationship. You know, those those first two things that you said make total sense to me, and those are clear thoughts. The third one, I think, is, is your disease talking to you that you won't be able to stay sober on your own. I think that's the fear of being alone, wanting to keep you in that relationship that is um, really endangering your sobriety. And let's be honest, your life and maybe your kids, your kids' lives. I mean, if you OD, they don't have a mom. None of us plan to OD, but fuck a lot of us do. Three people I know died OD in the last three months. Uh, 
I know this is why I love your show. I imagine I fit your average listener description quite nicely. Ha ha ha. Anyway, today is day one for me again. I'm hitting a meeting tonight. I guess I just need to take it one day at a time for now. You you know all the information. What a great example of this is not an intellectual process as much as it is one of committing taking faith that that things will work out and i think that's a spiritual aspect often of recovery working through trauma whatever it is is just saying i'm going to walk through the fear i'm going to walk through the unknown um because i can't keep doing this um my friend bill who i had as a guest a couple of uh, a couple of months ago he he said to me um and he was quoting somebody else who said you know are you interested in getting sober or are you committed to being sober and i think you can apply that to anything in our lives are you are you interested in this relationship with you you have with a person or are you committed to it are you interested in sobriety or are you committed to it um It's a lot to think about. I've probably made your situation worse. Let's be honest. I've probably just sabotaged any chance your kids have had at a at a healthy life by just pouring just pouring sand into your ear. That's basically what the last five minutes of me moving my jaw was. Is just me vomiting sand directly into your brain. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. And, uh, you know, we talk about therapy a lot on the podcast. And I uh, I need it, man. I need it because when I don't have a sounding board, uh, I think of some pretty <laughs> stupid shit. And it's just really nice to have somebody who is a professional that I can bounce things off of that can sometimes say, oh, this might be a good time to bring in cognitive behavioral therapy or uh, to maybe work through some trauma that seems unresolved. Um, If you've never tried BetterHelp, if you've never tried online therapy, give it a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. I'm a big fan of BetterHelp. I've been using it for years, and I love my therapist, Heidi. She's awesome. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Find more balance with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com mental today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash mental and make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from the podcast that would be awesome if you did that and uh, finally this is from the voice in your head survey filled out by Callie what are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself it's okay they won't know the fear in you if you keep a straight face my consciousness might be disintegrated heavy weighted blanket on my brain symptomatically and i can't think straight things present themselves for a reason and i can't see straight i couldn't even drive the first movie that i remember watching with him post-traumatic stress i was like five years old was pulp fiction (laughs) and moral injury i would act out the scenes gonna go to hell or my barbies The greatest source of our suffering Ordinary is where all the good stuff happens Is our unwillingness to experience and accept our emotions It is very hard to heal in dark isolation I developed compassion It is in connection and community where that happens The process was nearly unbearable Like, I'm going to have to kill myself We'll be right back after this (laughs) I'm here with Emmy Neatfeld 
Uh, and you had a terrific childhood. <laughs> Thank you. That's it. I just wanted to tell you that uh, I think you're very lucky that uh, everything went so well for you. Where's my award? Do I get a prize? <laughs> you do. I just wanted to, to tell you that you're a big baby and an exaggerator. And um, and the whole world is mad at you. Well, you wouldn't be the first person to tell me that. <laughs> oh so God. I'm not... <laughs> I'm not too surprised to hear those yes. words. Oh my God. I am uh I'm so glad that you're that you're here and Wow, where where do we begin? Let's start let's let's start with talk about your your mom's upbringing because I, I that's one of the things I'm glad you touched on um in your book was the kind of environment she was raised in because as, as I was reading your book, I found myself getting so mad at your mom, and I just had to try to remember where she came from. Yeah. My mom had a difficult, difficult childhood. Her own mom probably had schizophrenia. Um, her dad was a chemist, um, which meant he was pretty harsh and very into science. Um, and she felt like she had to escape the situation. I didn't know all the details. Um seems like one of those things that was so bad that she really didn't want to talk about it. But it did motivate her to go away to college when she was just 16 years old, even though that meant giving up her lifelong dream of attending Stanford. She really wanted to attend. Um, she was really young. Was it because Stanford wouldn't accept somebody who was that young? That's what she says. When I was growing up, I heard all the time this origin story from my mom of, you know, I had this abusive childhood, I had to get away, I almost got into Stanford, but they rejected me because I was too young. I don't think that they gave her a reason. I think that they probably just gotcha. rejected her, but it had a big impact on me the way that she phrased it as I almost got into Stanford. Right. And as a kid, almost every day, she would bring up how her life would have been different if she'd gone yeah. to Stanford. Yeah. Uh, talk about some of the things that she was forced to do as a as a kid with her, was it her sisters? Like calisthenics? The, yeah. Yeah, like her and her sisters had to do calisthenics together. They did the Royal Canadian Air Force exercises every day. Right. Um and they weren't allowed to be in the same room as the microwave when it was on because it would potentially impact their reproductive organs. And they were all given measles before there was a vaccine so that there would be no chance that they got it when they got pregnant. Intentionally given measles? Oh, yeah. Like they brought someone over who had measles and they put them all in a room together and they were like, you're all going to get sick so that you don't get it later. And that was the kind of guy that my grandfather was. You know, and it seems like my grandmother was worse. I never met her. She died before I was born. But there just was not a lot of, there was not a lot of love in that home. And it was a really doggy dog family, you know, with four sisters. My mom was the kid who, who was supposed to be the boy. So her middle name is the name that was supposed to be the name of the son. And which she which was? Girl. I, I don't want to say because then I'll give her away. Okay. But um, but she, she was ashamed of it. Right. You know, because it was the name of who she was supposed to be. Right. But then wasn't. Um, 
Well, yeah, I'm, I'm a little confused because you write about your mom in a book, which is public. So, um, and I'm not pressing you to, yeah. to reveal that it, it, it's, uh, there seems like there's a little, um, cognitive dissonance for me because isn't her identity revealed by the fact that you wrote a book with your name and she's your mom? I mean, I think if you do a lot of sleuthing, you could probably figure I it out, gotcha. right? I gotcha. Um, but it's like, you know. Does she have a different last name than you? Yeah, we have different oh, last names. Yeah. okay. Exactly. That, and it's like, now. and it's always the question for memoirists, right? Like, what is my story to tell versus what is someone else's story? Right. And, and that's a fine line. And it, I mean, it's hard when it's your parents. Yeah. Because most people, you can just change their name. You can change, you know, I didn't change details in this book, but there were situations where I left stuff out. Because it was like, this is my this is my story that I'm telling, but I don't need there to be consequences for this person, right? Right. Like it's it's about my experience of them and not like who they really are or who they are today. Like there's a difference there. Yeah. That yeah. makes that makes sense. Uh so let's start with uh your story. Um where where do we begin with that? Well, I was born in Minnesota. My family was Christian, Protestant. We went to a lot of different churches, like changing almost every year. And by the time I was around nine years old, we were what I would I would peg as evangelical. Um, and um, yeah, my my parents got married um, very quickly. My mom was thirty nine when she met my father. And she desperately wanted a blonde daughter. And I was that child. I was her blonde daughter. Um, and she she met my dad and they got married without... It seemed like there wasn't a lot of other consideration besides that. And so um, my dad had been unhoused for a while you know, very rarely had a job. Um, and this was the type of situation that they were getting getting into. Yeah, you said that your dad, you know, ex- expected the woman to cook and clean, very uh, kind of un- unevolved dude. Yeah, there was definitely a lot of patriarchal gender roles in our house, which were totally confirmed. Like I went to a school where girls weren't allowed to wear pants like not even leggings in the Minnesota winter. Um, and so I, I mean, and I, I loved my dad. Right. And I just accepted like, you know, the father's the head of the home, like whatever he says goes. Um, whereas it was a lot harder for my mom because, you know, she was a grown adult woman who didn't want to be told like, Hey, you have to go to work, make the money and then come home and cook for us and clean for us and do all that stuff. Uh, talk about your dad's attitude towards uh, your half-brother. My mom had a son from her first marriage. He was 12 years older than me. And um, my dad absolutely did not want a stepson. And my brother begged my mom before they got married, like, don't marry this guy. Like, you're going you're gonna to get married. You're going to have a baby. You're going to buy a minivan. And then you're going to forget about me. And that's exactly what happened. I mean, I'm sure my mom didn't forget about him. Right. But my dad was like, you know, I don't want you to live here. 
like would accuse my brother of like, you know, he's a fornicator, like he has sex before marriage. And like he's 12. Yeah. <laughs> and then he was like 13 and 14 and like and he was a great, you know, he was a great brother to me. I have pictures of him like holding me upside down by my ankles. Like I I remember one day him like explaining Jesus to me because he was and is like very Christian. And he was like explaining, you know, Jesus died on the cross. And he told me, like, if there was a 50% chance that you, my sister, would be killed tomorrow, but I could make that stop today if I 100% died, like, I would take that. You know, I would die to, like, cut the chance of you dying from 50% to 0%. Um, but my But my dad was like you know, he's not really your brother. He's just your half brother. It doesn't count. Like he's a bad influence on you and basically kicked him out as soon as he possibly could. And and wasn't he living downstairs? Yeah. So we lived in a duplex. And so we were, we were living in one apartment and then basically he was banished with his girlfriend to the other apartment. And how old was he when that happened? He was like maybe 15 maybe 14 and living with his girlfriend already well his girlfriend like she didn't have a home either you know and and they weren't and i totally i believe that they were chased until the day they got you know it's none of my business right Right. but he was like they're living in sin all this stuff like they were they were like very into faith yeah so it's interesting how people cherry pick parts of a book yeah (laughs) exactly yeah. yeah absolutely uh so What's what's next? What's next for me? Oh, and what's next in my story? Yeah, let's fast okay. forward through your whole story. <laughs> Where are you going after you leave here? That's all I I'm was interested like, quick in. interview. Well, I obviously <laughs> failed that. Um, when I was in fourth grade, my dad came and picked me up from school. And we pulled over in the carpool line. He said to me, I'm going to change my name. I'm changing my name to Michelle. And I was a little surprised that that was the announcement that day. Um, But I, you know, I just wanted clarification. I was like, are you going to be a woman now? And she replied, yes. And yes, but don't tell your mom. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, (laughs) she wasn't ready yet, right? You know, it's kind of a big thing to like put on your fourth grader without uh, telling them to not tell their parents. But um, but. You know, I, I think people people at the time, once she did come out, they were like, this is so shocking. This turns your world upside down as a child. But it actually, it wasn't that big of a deal to me, the actual transition. Because I had, you know, I had grown up believing like my dad is this person who can do no wrong. And when my dad is a woman, it's like, that's fine. That's totally within her rights. And... um but that was very different than what happened when Michelle came out to my mom and other people knew. And that was when the trouble really began. Especially in a small town. Well, I mean, Minneapolis isn't exactly oh, a small it town. Was Minneapolis. But For some reason, I was thinking it was uh, a, a smallish. Well, it was like a suburb. I mean, oh, I was I was kind of thinking of when you lived with Jan. Yeah, and Dave. in Lakeville. Yeah. yeah. Well, we were we were in a suburb 
And, you know, we, we attended a church that was like our community. You're talking about Minneapolis or Jan and Dave? We'll get to Jan and Dave oh, yeah. for, the, for, the, for the listeners. This is like my family of origin. Okay. Yeah. We lived in, you know, so it was, but it was also to like 2001. And so nobody knew about what it means to be trans. Right. Like there, there hadn't even been that Oprah episode yet. And so it was very, very shocking to the people we went to church with, to the people I went to school with, to my mom. And was anybody at the church accepting? I don't remember anybody being, you know, and I, and also my, my dad was kind of a curmudgeon, you know? Yeah. That didn't help. Yeah. That doesn't help. And my mom had been trying to divorce, get a divorce for a while. Like she was really thinking about how to leave she was also a good Christian, you know, who thought divorce is wrong. I don't want to do that. Um, and so this and, was... And would you put good Christian in air quotes or... or yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm doing air quotes under the table, right? Because your said air quotes. Yeah. Like, I <laughs> I don't... <laughs> yeah, I think she was a she was a quote unquote good Christian. Yes. Um, and yeah, and so this was her, you know, this was, this was what was going to divorce my parents. Right. And I honestly, I wasn't that upset by that either because they did not have a happy marriage. They both seemed miserable with each other. And I was like, this is a new start. You know, it's, I thought it's probably going to be better for me to not have my parents together and fighting and live with Michelle. Yeah. I mean, hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully. Or like split custody. You know, either of those would have been like great to me. Well, we'll describe your mom's issues as an adult and what the home was like physically all through my childhood i remember my mom compulsively shopping usually in secret where she would go to target on her lunch hour and buy a hundred winnie the pooh tigger watches at a dollar each and then have this bag with a hundred wristwatches in it so not to resell and make money just to have just to have or sometimes to to give away sometime in the future. There was a charity where you filled up shoeboxes for quote unquote kids overseas. And this was this was like her big passion in life, still is to this day. And so she would make like recently she's made like 700 boxes in a year, 800 boxes in a year. So she would buy like 800 pairs of scissors, 800 dog shirts that she thought an emaciated orphan could wear. Um, the list just goes, and I mean, it would fill up like her entire apartment, right? But back then, everything was still in secret. It was like mostly secret for my dad. After they separated and they went through this bitter custody battle, my mom ended up winning full custody. Then suddenly there was nobody really holding her back. And do you think there was prejudice against Michelle uh, because she was trans? I definitely felt prejudice from the social workers and stuff that I talked to, where everybody was just like asking me, are you traumatized? Like, you must be so traumatized. You know, I, I was like, I'm fine that Michelle is transitioning. And that probably made people even more suspicious than if I'd been like, yeah, I'm a little traumatized, right? right. Um, But Michelle also had significant mental health issues that I, at the time I didn't really know about. I knew more about anger. Um, Once my parents split up, she invited two, like she had two different live-in partners during the single year of the custody evaluation. 
which is typically not a good look for a (laughs) parent who's trying to win custody to be like, hey, there's this person I met on the internet who is now lives with us, right? Who, Who sometimes calls my daughter a little bitch. So that was not a not necessarily like the smartest move. Um, and I I feel like I had a recollection of the custody evaluators basically being like, well, neither of these parents is a great fit, you know, yeah. but this is, you know, this is what she has. Um, and even as a kid, you know, I remember reading books about foster care and being like, that seems kind of nice, you know, compared to these people that I was given at birth. And eventually I was going to learn the truth about foster care, but I just remember fantasizing, like, what if I could just go live with some other family someplace else? And did the clutter, uh, the the physical hoarding uh, and the um, lack of sanitary, uh, I don't know what the, what the word would be, <laughs> did that kind of go off the deep end after Michelle left? It exploded. So my mom, my mom's house went from being, you know, kind of messy to having piles of stuff on every single surface. In the kitchen, the counters were covered of, full of stuff. Like most of the stove burners were covered. There were enormous piles on the floor so that all that was left was narrow paths between the different rooms. And this led to mice and mildew and for weeks, we often did not have hot water. Um, but there was nobody, you know, nobody was going to stop it. Nobody was coming inside. Yeah, she had the rule. You don't let anybody in. Yeah. Especially social workers. Yeah, never a social worker. Just describe that moment uh, when you were a kid and the social worker paid a visit. When I was about 13, I by that point, I'd had some mental health problems which led to me being assigned a social worker. And one afternoon, my mom was at work and I was sitting on the front porch when her white government Ford pulled up. And my social worker came up to the porch, you know, was acting friendly as they're wont to do, and was like, hey, Emmy, can I come inside? And it seemed like an innocent question, but I knew that it was really, really loaded. And I had been begging people to come to our house for years. I was like, I, if somebody just saw... To validate your experience. Exactly. Like, if somebody just saw how we lived, they would understand, like, what's going on, why I'm struggling, and I hope that they would be able to just make my mom change. But when she came over and she asked me, I also realized, if I open this door... I know my mom has told me a million times, don't let anyone inside, especially not someone from the government. And my mom was going to blame me forever for what happened. And so I was torn between her potentially coming inside and seeing and rescuing me and getting me out and knowing that, you know, my mom was never going to forgive me. And was there a fear for your own trajectory if you were taken from the home? Or was it just all, uh, I can't wait, anything is better than this? For a while, I felt like, you know, I can't wait. I got to get out of here, whether it's the psych ward or an institution or foster care, like whatever, anything is better. But in that moment, 
you know, really staring it down, I was like, you know, I need my mom. We live in a society where parents have so much control over their children. And I thought, you know, if I open this door, she's going to put me in her car and she's going to drive me away. And we're going to go, go to the God worker. knows where. Yeah, yeah. exactly. We're going to go to God knows where. And who knows what's going to happen with me for the rest of my I mean, life. That's got to be terrifying. It's got to be. Yeah, it was absolutely terrifying. And I was also afraid, you know, my mom's house could have been condemned. And she had she had a job. It wasn't super high paying. And her shopping ate up a lot of her paychecks. Um, but having a house, that was really the difference between being okay financially and potentially being destitute and she was a crime scene photographer she was a crime scene photographer just to add Minnesota. some lightness yeah just a little lightness i can sing you a few songs some about sprinkles crime on scene the, photography on if you'd like yeah <laughs> yeah she said shooting dead people was a lot easier because they never moved <laughs> they never messed up the shot <laughs> that is fantastic yeah also all dead people look alike is what she said yeah yeah and you get used to it after about two weeks that's what she told my my future in-laws the first time she met them. <laughs> you describe uh, the meeting between your mom and your in-laws for the first time. Um, re- recall some of uh, that that moment. I, I think one of the phrases you used was your your in-laws' eyes kind of wandering uh, away from the table and staring at the wall. When I was 25, I married a guy who is from this very waspy East Coast family. Um, My husband's mom went to Harvard. His dad went to MIT. And when they met my mom and told her this, you know, she was like, smart family, good genes. Um, And then proceeded to tell them in great detail all about her career as a crime scene photographer. And I think it was like an hour long monologue that happened. Um, And I was just like reaching under the table. Like I was ready to squeeze Byron's hand off. Like my fiance was going to walk out of there without a hand. Um, And, you know, and my mom also, she was very, is very proud of her memory. And she brought up to them like, hey, here's the things that my daughter got wrong. Like here, like on her college application essay, she messed up the weight she was when she was born. You know, she said she weighed nine pounds, two ounces. She weighed eight pounds, seven ounces. And it felt like she was trying to set up the stage that I wasn't really somebody to be trusted. What do you think as you describe that? Uh, Especially what might be going on from your, you know, just to play kind of armchair psychologist what was going on from your mom's point of view i mean obviously a lot of it is her mental illness but was there like some kind of sick uh angle she was working i don't think that she ever had a bad intention yeah i don't and i have in my head playing right now if i imagine i'm my mom The song that's playing in my head is that song that goes, she's cute, but she's psycho. And like she was trying to warn my in-laws like, hey, you know, she's she's cute, but don't trust her. She's been in and out of the psych ward since she was 12, 13. Exactly. And like you should know what 
you know, I, I felt like I had to warn my in-laws, like, hey, here's what you're getting yourself into when you meet my mom. And my mom was probably trying to do the same thing to be like, hey, this is the this is the girl who will soon be your daughter. In the way she thinks about it. And recalling that, do any feelings come up? Anger, sadness, nothing? I just feel embarrassed. You know, I feel really embarrassed to have been in that in that position, you know? My, yeah. And and you called your uh, future mother-in-law. Uh, d- describe that phone call. This was before they met your mom. Yeah. I I had delayed my mom meeting these people, or my, these people meeting my mom for years. And my hope was that I was going to get married, and my mom and my in-laws would meet at the wedding for like five minutes, and then would go their separate ways. And a few, like a week before that, like, I'll re-say that, like a few weeks before the wedding, um, my in-laws, they planned a trip to Minnesota, my ancestral homeland, um, at the same time we were going to be there because they were like determined that they were going to meet my mom. And so I was like panicking. I was like, do I have to tell them anything about her? Like, because if they saw her car... They were going to see that it was piled to the top with stuff. And even just meeting her, like she might have a smell on her, right? Like maybe mouse pee, maybe rotten banana, maybe just that must that comes with this old stuff. There's a smell too to depression, unwashed clothes, like oil, like, you know, human oil uh on clothes that's that's unwashed. Mm. Uh, I, I don't know if you've experienced that, but people that I'm close with, um, you know, laundry becomes something that just kind of washing bed sheets. And sometimes I walk into somebody's house and I'm like, oh, they're depressed. Oh, man. I mean, we couldn't get to the, she couldn't get the, to the clothes washer. Yeah. So like laundry was not often going on. And so I, I, you know, called her and I was like, I have to just, I had like a script written down in front of me. Being like, my mom struggles with compulsive shopping and hoarding. And because of this, we don't have a close relationship. And it was just really like the bare minimum facts. But that was more than I had told just about anybody in my life before that. You had told Byron? I had told him a little bit. Like yeah. he knew that. He had met my mom a few times. Um, but it was still pretty surface level. And and did he make any comments after he met your mom to you? And he, did he question you at all? Like, um, what what was the kind of the communication, if any, about her? I think he felt bad for me. Yeah. You know, where he was just like, just play along with her and then we'll leave. Like, it'll make it faster if you just agree to everything she takes with her. Or agree to everything that she tries to give you. And then we'll just throw it in the trash can on our way out. Um, He was, he's like a very, I married a guy who's like very accepting and understanding way more so than me. Um, But he could tell that she was weighing on me, you know? So let's go back to the first time you, um, the, I guess you would say your mental illness presented itself externally. Mm -hmm. When, For me, it was a little, the timing was a little interesting 
because, you know, my parents divorced. I was in sixth grade living with my mom in this hoarder house. And before I had really felt like depression or anxiety or any of those those things, my mom took me to therapy. And she told the doctor, you know, I think that you have ADD. I think my daughter is distracted. She's chronically late. And when she reads, she really goes into this hyper-focus mode. And, and, and studying was your refuge. Yeah, books. studying was my refuge. And, you know, when I read a book, it was the only time that I could forget about my physical environment, right? That I was living in this hellhole. Um, but, like, she was convinced, you know, I think she, my daughter has ADD. And my mom is very charming. She's well-spoken. She herself is diagnosed with ADD. Um, and so I was given a questionnaire. My mom took a questionnaire. My teacher did. It was like a one-page thing. And then I was sent for medication. And so for me, like I was receiving this therapy, you know, it was family therapy. It was with my mom and um, a lot of like her complaining about, you know, the things that I was doing that she was unhappy with. For instance? Um not doing the dishes when we couldn't get into the sink and there was stuff in front of it. You know, she blamed a lot of the hoarding on me and on me being messy, even though she did not want anything to get thrown away. Like, I think she had this fantasy that if everything was just organized, there would be space for it all. And she had promised you often that she was going to tidy up, change things. Yeah. I mean, she would like bring a friend over and they'd spend like, you know, a whole day cleaning and then there would be like a tiny trash bag. Um, but when I tried to, to clear stuff out, you know, I threw away the stuff that was obviously, obviously bad, like, you know, really expired food, not just a little expired, but you know, a year or more, um, receipts for things that were past the return date. Um, I remember my mom coming home from work and being absolutely devastated. Like she went, to the alleyway and dug through the trash can, pulling out like one thing after another to take back inside. And then she... Even expired food or other Yeah, things? I mean, she's like, the expiration dates are all lies, right? And old receipts, like it was just all, it was all important to her. And what do you remember thinking or feeling in that moment, watching your mom dig through the trash for things that so clearly to the average person were not important. I felt like there was no way I could win, right? Like I I was being blamed for having all this stuff, but I also couldn't get rid of it, right? And it, what was worse for me was how how upset she was. Like she was so mad at me and she just like, staring into her face like she looked like a hurt child who had just been slapped and i'll always remember how she said to me she's like you emotionally raped me by throwing away my stuff and it was and it was like it didn't feel manipulative it felt like that was really what was going on for her her, her truth yeah that was her truth um yeah and i think that and I have, you know, and I think it's really hard for parents after divorce, especially when you believe that the other parent turned your child against you. And I think my mom interpreted the situation as that was what was going on. 
and that if only it wasn't for my dad, that everything between us would be like hunky-dory. Um, and so I think that that's why we went to therapy and then why I was given medication. But it sounds like, it, as you describe this uh, in the book, that your mom was not prepared to take any responsibility for anything. She just wanted you fixed. Absolutely. Talk, talk about that, what that was like. Yeah. I At first, I was so confused because I was like, I don't know what the problem is, right? Like, I I don't know how a kid could go through a divorce and then a parental abandonment because Michelle moved across the country um, after the like divorce was finalized and we never spoke again. Um, I didn't know how anybody to could, this day. Well, like we've Facebook messaged, gotcha. but like I've never seen her face to face. I've never talked to her on the phone. And those Facebook messages were like pretty fraught, you know, like me trying to reconnect and then it not happening. What does that feel like? I mean, that sucks. <laughs> it sucks, but like, you know, it at least I was a little older when it was going on, right? Mm-hmm. Versus when I was like 10, you know, I thought that she just doesn't want to, you know, she just doesn't care, she doesn't, you know. And there was stuff there was stuff going on for her and there was stuff going on with like the the court orders and stuff like that where at a certain point she was court ordered not to make contact with me. Why? Um, well, she had, I was going to go visit her. I like, I literally, I don't think that I knew this as a child, but as an adult, I went back and I requested all of the divorce records that I could get from the county. And I had been supposed to go visit her for winter break. And her lawyer had told the judge, Emmy needs to stay longer because Michelle is in the midst of a mental health crisis and is suicidal. And she needs more time with Emmy to help her not kill herself. Ooh. Yeah, I, I don't I feel like this lawyer That's a shitty lawyer. Yeah, I I hate that, you know, he got so much money from my parents, right? From from Michelle. And at that point the judge, you know, the judge wasn't gonna send a eleven year old on suicide watch. And so instead, like it became like you're not allowed to to make contact oh, with Emmy you. unless it's through like mediation right but my mom didn't she didn't tell me that you know instead it was just like hey you know michelle's gone and guess see how much she loves you now like that type of a vibe had you started uh cutting or your eating disorder uh start up at that when when did that start up um was that before or after the first uh, psych ward um it was kind of like after so I was given I was given ADD medication, and that was kind of where the the mental health saga begins for me. Where I took Concerta, I freaked out. I had to get Xanax. I mean, I was basically having a panic attack. Um, and and Concerta is an amphetamine, or it, what? What is yeah, it? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's not. I don't know if it's technically an amphetamine, but it's in that class of drugs where it's like a stimulant, you I know. Gotcha. And like as an adult. I can't even have decaf coffee. Like a few sips of decaf really? will mess me up. Yeah. And so I was given Concerta, you know, and I I had straight A's in school. Like I had, you know, how can a 10-year-old be disorganized or chronically late? Like I, you know, I don't know where that came from. 
And after Concerta, my mom gave me her leftover Adderall. It's written up in my medical records that she went to the doctor and was like, you know, Emmy didn't freak out when I gave her my Adderall. And the doctor gave her a prescription so that she'd stop giving me her old pills. And like Adderall wasn't the best either. And after that didn't work out for me, they were like, well, you know, if ADD medication isn't working, then Emmy must be depressed. And so then I started taking Prozac and then Zoloft and Lexapro. And, you know, obviously these medications help a lot of people, right? Yeah. Um, but also, that's a lot, especially when you're 10 or 11 years old. I mean, maybe I think by the time I was taking this stuff, I was 12. Um, but I ended up going through a dozen psychiatric drugs over the course of two years. And and like as I took each one, I just felt worse and worse. And, and there was and all- you took a Billify. Yeah, I took a bill. Oh, that is a shit show. I mean, maybe that works for some people, but holy shit, that is one of the the worst uh, side effects I've ever had from a drug. Just suicidal ideation, anxiety. Just yeah. it was great for a month, but <laughs> and then it just turned. I mean, and at the time, people were not as as aware of the fact that these these drugs can lead people to young people, children to feel suicidal or have suicidal behaviors and also that withdrawal can be really bad. And so, yeah. And so I was in this cycle and I really had no, I hadn't no idea what role medication was playing. I just thought, you know, this pill is supposed to help me and it's not working. And so I must really be fucked up. And were you in therapy at this time? The people that were prescribing these medications, were they also giving as much weight to you processing thing things in therapy? Or was it they just thought medicine's going to cure everything? No. For the most part, I went to a like physician's assistant who I would see for like 10 minutes with my mom and then get a new prescription. I was in family therapy with my mom, with this um, same doctor who who sent me to medication. Um, but I wasn't in individual therapy for like a few years. And then when I when I did enter individual therapy, it was very much presented as you've been bad and we're here to make you be good. What the fuck was that about? I mean, that's the I think that's the assumption, right? When you have a preteen or a teenager who is like whose parent is unhappy with them. It's like we we often assume like, hey, the kid, you know, the kid is a troublemaker, right? How, how does a decent therapist not dig to the root cause of a child acting out? Well, you're assuming they're decent. Yeah. You know, and and I experienced this individual therapy. The person I'm thinking about was through a dialectical behavioral therapy program. And I mean, DBT, it helps a lot of people. Um, but the the place I was at, it was like a room full of these kids whose parents were mad at them. And it was all about just like change your behavior. I was told, you know, when I was, when I began to get really sad and have like emotional outbursts, right? I would like yell at my mom, like, I I hate you. I want to live somewhere else. Um, All of those things, they were behaviors that needed to be changed, right? And that was seen as like, you know, if you fix the problem which is the behavior, then there's no more problem anymore. If you fix the inconvenience. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I, I think people often have this idea that therapies is a place where you go to process things to get to the root cause. 
It should be. I mean, it should be, but a lot of times it's not. And particularly when it's like a therapist who is like, you know, these people, they were not making a lot of money, right? They were probably really overworked and probably undertrained. And so, you know, they didn't have a lot of time. It was just like, we got to fix you in 10 weeks. And this was through your mom's uh, insurance with the government, correct? Yeah, exactly. And so we had, I mean, we had pretty generous insurance. I don't know what out of, you know, I don't know if she could have gotten somebody out of network. But, you know, my mom was also, she was looking for therapists who were going to be on her side. And as soon as somebody wasn't on her side, it was out the door. So describe your first psych ward experience. How old were you? What was it like? Just after I turned 13, I was feeling really, really depressed. I had started self-harming for the first time. And I remember my mom called the health insurance like nurse hotline. And one person told me, she was like, you just need to get out of your house. You should go to a shelter and go stay at a youth shelter. And my mom was like, yeah, that's fine if you want to get molested. And somebody else eventually suggested, like, you should take your daughter to the ER and they can evaluate her there. And so I went to the ER and it was this clean, relatively quiet place. When the psychiatrist came to evaluate me, I was um, kind of relieved that they were going to admit me. And I went to... The psych ward at the University of Minnesota Medical Center, and I loved it. The air was clean. It didn't smell like mouse pee or dog poop. There was endless hot water. I could take as many showers as I wanted for as long as I wanted. And at home, we couldn't even get into the bathtub. And there was food, like warm food that was prepared. Um, And it was just like, felt like a five-star retreat after being in my mom's house. And basically, as soon as I was um, discharged, I got home and suddenly I felt horrible again. And I just wanted to go back there. And had you uh, described your living conditions to the staff? It's hard to say in that specific situation. But for years, I had been telling everybody I could, you know, you just need to come over, just come see. What I had found was that the more I described it, the more people labeled me dramatic. How is that even possible? Well, my mom was would say, you know, we're just messy. Like, you know, I'm a messy person. I have ADD. My daughter probably has ADD. She's super messy. And, you know, she's very well-spoken. She's white and college educated. And so people just believed her, right? And who's going to believe the teenage girl who has unwashed hair and has taken a ton of different psychiatric drugs. Like nobody was going to believe It's so heartbreaking. I mean, reading your book, one of the things that is so angering is how you are failed at every turn. Talk about, is that easy to take in when somebody says that? Is there a part of you that, that is like, I don't, deserve that kind of compassion or are you able to take that in i can take it in because i know a lot of people are also failed at every turn 
talk about Miss J. So after I went through the psych ward a couple times, I was sent to residential treatment. Um, I spent nine months in a locked facility. I And then after that, I finally went into foster care. And while I was there, I attended this beautiful, huge suburban school. This was Jan and Dave. Yeah, I had I, my foster parents. Yeah, Minnesotans. Um, the This family was a very different family than I had grown up with. Uh, backwards would be an understatement. Yeah. Like, Naive would be an understatement. Like my flashcards of Michelangelo's David. Those were considered pornography in their house. That I think that sums it up perfectly. <laughs> um, but luckily at school, I had absolutely wonderful teachers. And I took a photography class where my teacher, her name was Miss J. And she was one of the only people who knew that I was in foster care. And she was very awkward. Um, she looked like a turtle who had like come out of its shell and was not comfortable out in the light. Um, but she let me stay after school. She would give me reviews on the photos that I took. And she was just generally there for me and supportive. You know, we were not having deep conversations. But, you know, she would sing along to Paul Simon's Kodachrome when it mm. came on uh, on the radio. And um, she really changed my life. In part because she made me feel like I was good at something and like I had power over at least one part of my life. And she really clearly cared. So let's fast forward to um, the academics. And and I, I believe there was something in your book about you filled out your college applications while living in a car? Yeah. So I, I always loved to study ever since I was young. And I had dreamed about maybe one day attending an Ivy League school. My academics were all over the place. I ended up going through a bunch of different schools. And by the time I was applying to college, I was going to boarding school. And I had a scholarship. But during breaks, the dorms closed. And my mom's house was worse than ever. And so I was piecing together places to stay with friends and at academic programs. I I ended up running out of places to go and sleeping in my car and then eventually staying at a shelter. And this whole time I was like, I need to be writing my college applications. Like if you you'd asked me at that time, I would have told you that the biggest problem in my life was that my personal statement sucked. Because I knew that my chance at getting into a school like Harvard or Yale or MIT, the type of place that can give somebody a full ride and gives you a lot of security to really change your life. I knew that those places, it wasn't going to be enough for them, that I had gotten mostly A's and had a good SAT score. I was really going to need to sell the story of my family, my childhood, my adolescence mm -hmm. In a way that was going to make me look like an overcomer. And exaggerate your birth weight. And exaggerate my birth weight. Absolutely. Yes. Like, I, mean, I had to be a huge baby. Underneath it all, wasn't that really the goal, Emmy? Was to Truly. inflate your size as a, 
as a fetus. I clearly just wanted to cause my mom more pain and discomfort than I already was <laughs> by being an enormous infant. So you were uh, accepted into Harvard. And how old were you? I was 17. Yeah. And describe looking through the lens of preconceived notions you had about the American dream and um, accomplishments, what you felt then and how you feel about it now. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. When I first got the email, I was sitting in the public library and I screamed. I screamed, uh, felt like a hundred heads turned around to stare at the rude girl who was making noise in the library. But I jumped up and down. I ran outside. I danced in the rain. I was, it was just like this moment thinking about it now. I still almost can't believe that it happened. Like it's hard for me to believe that I live in like this branch of the multiverse where I was accepted into Harvard. And I just knew that my life was going to change and I couldn't even imagine how it was going to change, but I knew that it would. And it also became really disappointing pretty fast because I had put all of my hopes and dreams into this one goal. Yet my life, you know, it still kind of looked the same. Like I still didn't have a place to go when school was closed. My mom was still really struggling. Um, and so it did not solve all my problems right away. And I imagine you were hiding the details of your life from from people, or were you sharing it with anybody? No. So that that was a huge burden on me, where in order to get into college, I had created this story of myself as this kind of perfect survivor, where I wrote about, you know, I was in foster care and I was homeless, but I knew that I needed to leave out the details. Like, I could not say I was in psych wards. I was in a locked facility for my entire fresh, almost my entire freshman year. And so I, I felt like if I shared those things, my admission would be rescinded. And I also felt this kind of moral obligation. Like I, I sold myself as this person who is like this incredible, you know, triumphant vision of the American dream. And I, I had a lot of morality attached to that, right? I felt like that is what it means to be a good person, is to be somebody who goes through that stuff, but isn't really affected by it, yeah. right? Who yeah. emotionally, yeah. Yeah, and who just gets gets over it. And like, of course I wasn't over it. I was 17 years old. Right. And I had written that stuff while I was still sleeping in my car. But, but I felt like, you know, I have this opportunity that everybody dreams about, but very few people get. And so I owe it to Harvard and to the world at large to just be that person. And so after that, I went through and I was like, I can't, you know, I can't talk about any of this stuff. Uh, and I and I also didn't talk about like my parents, my home, like the institutions or foster care, because I didn't I didn't I knew people were going to say like, oh, you're so incredible. Like, you know, you're so strong. And I didn't want people to say that stuff to me, you know, because I knew that that wasn't the whole story. And so what kind of experience was it there um, other than feeling a disconnect between what you were experiencing in inwardly and what were you ex 
you, what you were expressing outwardly? It was absolutely culture shock. Um, I got there from Minnesota and I didn't understand, like, where is Connecticut? Why is everyone from there? Like, what are these clothes that people are wearing? Um, and and I had really, I had thought, like, okay, the Ivy League is filled with bookworms and nerds. And it turns out those people go to MIT, right? Or somewhere mm-hmm. else. Those people were not really at Harvard. And so there was, like, a lot of kind of networking. Um, and... And I, but I wanted that, you know, I wanted to be somebody who had a good handshake and who knew how to make an elevator pitch. And so I really threw myself into obliterating my old self, Mm. which was damaging in some ways. And and that has to be fraught with anxiety that the real you is going to be uncovered. Yeah. And then eventually you're like, what is the real you? Right? Right. Like, I think today I'm still like who, you know, I, I learned I learned so much there that I'm like, what What else is is left of me besides this Harvard person that I became? And to be fair, like, there's times when that was absolutely thrilling. And I got a lot, you know, I got, I got a lot out of it. I learned social skills. I read that book, um, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Mm-hmm. And that was more useful than any of the therapy that I received in high school. Really? Yeah, because it's just, you know, when you come from a super dysfunctional family, especially one where people don't follow social norms. Like I didn't even know what the social norms were and people would meet me and assume that it was intentional, that I was acting, you know, like a weirdo. But the truth is I just literally had no idea. Like, what does it mean to be a good conversation partner? What does it mean to be considerate of other people? Right. I didn't realize you should say people's name all the time, Paul, because it makes them (laughs) like you. There's a point, though, where it feels like a car salesman, and it's so icky. <laughs> uh, sorry to give you the icks right now. <laughs> no, you didn't. You didn't. You didn't. Um, talk about um, your mentor, yeah. how she came into your life, and she's still in your life. Yeah. When I was 14 and I was locked up at this residential treatment center, I was bored out of my mind. There was endless hours of quiet time every single day where we just had to sit in our rooms. And at a certain point, the staff took away all my books. They said, these books are a distraction and you need to focus on being a kid and getting better. And I thought, fuck that. So when my social worker came to visit, she visited every month and I thought she was just useless, like that she could not do anything for me. But I was like, I'm so bored here. I have to ask. And so I was like, hey, do you think you could get me a poetry mentor who could help me write poems? Because I could write poems in my mm. little notebook and I would go undetected. And my social worker was totally shocked. But she was like, OK, I'll see what I could do. And the next time she came, she was like, I have someone for you. She's in the next room and she looks just like you. And I went into this next room and I met this person who I call Annette. And um, we got to spend time alone. And Annette was like, I don't think we're going to be a match because I don't like art. I hate poetry. Don't like art. My favorite thing is the Ikea sunflower print. And I was just like, you're 
a person from the outside. You seem normal. And best of all, she was from Europe. And to me, from Minnesota, I was like, you must be cultured and sophisticated. Um, And so we ended up, she was able to take me outside. We went for a walk. Um, She brought me apples as a gift so that I got to eat like a beautiful pink lady apple instead of like a mealy red delicious apple at snack time. And after that, I saw her like, I saw her once a month or once every few months. Um, But she was just this stable presence in my life. Um, Even when I was, you know, living in foster care with this family who I just did not get along with. Um, And she gave me a lot of advice. Like she was very straight with me, like about everything from um, what I should study in college to to really like my mom. Right. And she was so she she ended up being the first person who came to my mom's house one day when I was staying with her during winter break after leaving boarding school. And um, I was just I was crying because there was nowhere, you know, there was nowhere for me to sleep like it was worse than ever. And I was just so overwhelmed. And I called her and she was like, I'll come help you clean. Like, and then she showed up, she took a look around, um, picked up a few things and then was like, hey, would you mind? She asked my mom, she's like, hey, would you mind if uh, Emmy came and spent a few days with me? And my mom was like, oh, that's a lovely idea. Like, that'll be so great. And was totally on board. Was your mom pissed that you brought her over? By that time, she had known her for a few years, right? Gotcha. And so she wasn't, you know, she was like unsuspecting, right? Gotcha. But um, but then she she was shocked, you know, and she filed a child like one of the CPS reports, but nothing, and that did nothing happened because I wasn't in imminent danger. Like I was staying with, you know, I she told me that I was staying with her, and so they said, well, she's staying with you, so it's all fine. And she's like, I'm not this person's guardian, you know, I'm not always going to be around. Um, but then a few weeks later, I went back to boarding school. And then the whole process was going to just repeat itself again during the summer. Wow. So you get out of college. Um, what, what then? I studied computer science because I knew that I needed to graduate with a job. And you didn't know how to code when you. Oh yeah, went I into had college. no idea. I, everybody's like, "That's so random." Like, why did you do that? But I mean, my mentor Annette, she, I remember her sitting me down and asking me, "What are you going to major in?" And this is before I started. And I was like, "Oh, maybe like English or French." And she was like, "You need to make me a promise. Promise me you're not going to major in anything with English, French, or literature in the name." And she was like, and I was like, well, lots of people study that stuff. And she's like, rich people study that stuff. Like, you cannot study that stuff. And it was really good advice for me in my situation. And I also wanted to become a doctor back then. Like, every, you know, teenager with straight A's. And she was a doctor and she was like, you're going to hate it. You're not going to like being a doctor. It's not creative being a doctor. You just have to follow the rules all day. And so... I really credit her with, you know, I was like, okay, well, I need a job. I can't be a doctor. 
I don't have good enough social skills to go into finance or consulting. And so at Harvard, like the only thing that was left was studying computer science. So my first day of class, I, you know, I ended up at the introduction to CS lecture and it was something so unlike anything I'd ever done before that I was captivated. You know, I remember learning about my first algorithm, binary search. Every kid remembers their first algorithm, Emmy. <laughs> I also had a big crush Where on did the... you lo lose your algorithm? <laughs> <laughs> wow. I want to hear what your first algorithm was. Um, yeah. And I, it was just captivating. And so, and part of why I liked it was it was so different. Right. Yeah. And I had been, I had been writing as a teenager. I wrote a lot. But it was just too personal, you know? And I was like, I can't go there. I need more distance. Um, and I don't want people to know the truth. And writing as soon as I put my pen to paper, it was like the truth would spill out. That was not what I wanted for my time at Harvard. And so I graduated with a job at Google. I went to work as a software engineer in the Bay Area. And I was dating a fellow Harvard alum who I met through a friend. And on the surface, everything was great. And it really was like, you know, it was what I had hoped for. It was really nice to be free and be an adult and have my own room in a house full of roommates um, and make money and ride the Google shuttle. Um, but over time, as, as things got safer and more stable, I felt my past start to weigh on me more and more. And so kind of as it became safe to take things out of the box, they popped out of the box for me to look at and deal with. Emotionally. Yeah. Um, and yeah. And I mean, and I had this and I had stuck with that idea from college of like, I should not tell anyone. I should not, you know, be honest about my past. And so this guy that I was dating, who I would go on to marry, he he only knew really the bare minimum. Very, very little about what had happened in my life and he knew more than anybody else and so it's like i had friends but nobody knew and that became really really isolating and did there ever come a point where you felt unburdened and authentic well i i had had a dream about writing a book and i started doing it about three months after i graduated college I started writing this story. And at first I wrote it as this, like, look at me. I'm so great. Like, here's my story of triumph. Very much that, like, American dream thing that mm -hmm. that I to sold in my college applications. Um, But as I went on writing it and I started doing more research, I began to realize that that was not actually the full truth. And so I started requesting medical records, going back and emailing the people from my adolescence, and interviewing them. And I began to see a way more complicated picture. Um, and I I did begin sharing that with the person I was dating and with my friends. And um, I mean, every time I learned something new, I was devastated. Like I got my first set of medical records and I opened it up and read about the doctors calling me um, dramatic histrionic they were writing about me like i was a real problem 
And I, it made me feel like I was a real problem, right? All these years later, I shut my laptop, like closed the PDF, and I was like, I, I have to kill myself. Like, I can't live with the things that I did as a teen. Um, because they really saw me as a problem, right? And at first, I wasn't questioning that. And it took, it ended up taking time for me to be like, okay, that was one perspective, but that's not, that's not my perspective. And that's not the only perspective out there. Right. It's like you, you can't, um, disconnect the outward from the, from the, from the inner, or at least I don't think we should. No. That doesn't mean that people don't need consequences for their behavior. But when you're also talking about a child who's living in the circumstances that you lived in. Um, it's, it's just so, uh, heartbreaking to, to hear that, that nobody was giving weight to your situation, what was causing the, the outbursts. Yeah. Eventually I, I started to recognize how there had been this expectation on me that no matter what my mom was doing or anybody else was doing, I was supposed to just be okay and act okay. And we have this absolute obsession in America with resilience. And we see that as the best thing that a person can possibly be. Especially if it's orderly and socially polite. Absolutely. Yeah, where we we're faster to tell kids like, hey, learn these grit skills than we are to actually make sure that they have a safe environment that they're living in and that they're that they have the resources that they need to just like take a shower, have something to eat, like have a place to live. I think most of us just take for granted the the bare things like that. You know, we tend to think when somebody's, you know, being raised in a bad environment, there's, you know, there's yelling or they're not being paid attention to. But we often think America, you know, people have a place to shower. People, you know, reading your book where you just talked about trying to wash your hair, wash the oil out of your hair with cold water. I was like, I never even think about a child going through that. Yeah. And unfortunately, there's so many kids who are going through that. And that ended up being really what helped me feel less ashamed of my past. Like all of these experiences, they made me feel like I was alone, like I was this bad person and nobody would ever understand because it was all my fault. And I started to recognize, like, looking at, okay, how do residential treatment centers work? How do you how does the foster care and child welfare system work? That these systems are often designed to make people feel isolated. Like, that is the purpose of them. And when it's not the purpose, it's often the effect. And in fact, my experience with therapy and with adults like not helping me is unfortunately so, so common, especially for kids who are not coming from a place of tons and tons of privilege. If, if someone uh, is listening right now that has any kind of influence in the mental health care system, especially for adolescents, do you have any advice or suggestions or just things that you want to say? I would encourage them to be very critical of the idea of grit 
that has been just sweeping the nation over the last decade. Grit. Grit, where people yes. tell kids, like, you need to be gritty, learn these grit skills. And especially for traumatized people, mm-hmm. that is not really a, a solution. I think we also, pardon me for interrupting, but I think so many of us like the idea of grit because then we don't have any responsibility to help them. Absolutely. That is so well said. I completely agree. Um, yeah, I I wish that in my situation, people had really searched for the underlying problem and had listened to me when I told them what was going on. And it also would have been helpful to have treatment that focused on my goals, right? For adults, we kind of take this for granted often that we have things like motivational interviewing where we ask people, okay, what do you want to get out of treatment? Right. And even when somebody is 11 or 12 or 13 years old, most people know what they want to do when they grow up, what they want their life to look like. And a therapy that helped me focus on how do I get to that place I want to be? Um, and how do I just grow up and get out of here without seriously hurting or killing myself in the process? That was really what I needed. How many times in your life do you think you've uh, thought, I, I, I want to kill myself? I mean, millions. Like, it's just, it was for years, just this like hum in the back of my head. And more seriously thought that is fewer. Um, but it was kind of just this low-grade sense where I just thought the world is not a good place. My life is not ever going to be pleasant or worth living. And that it's just the rational thing to do to cut my losses and end the suffering sooner. Do do suicidal thoughts ever kind of flutter through your head still? Yeah, they do. Thank you for being honest about that. Yeah. I, I mean, for me, it's often also very situational where I realized in college, I, I made a personal challenge and I was like, I'm going to try putting sleep as my first priority which is not something a lot of college students do. That's a really intuitive uh, thought for a college student because I think most college students are like, I just need to sleep less to accomplish more. (laughs) Well, luckily I read a self-help book and they promised me that if I just got enough sleep, I would start getting straight A's. Thank you, Cal Newport. Um, So I, I did this challenge, right? And I remember after like two nights of sleeping for 10 hours a night, I woke up and my head was just silent. Like that hum of, I want to die, I want to die, I want to die. It just wasn't there anymore. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, and then of course it happened where I had some nights where I didn't sleep well. And then I was shocked when suddenly it was back. And that still happens to me. Like I can, I can handle like one night without enough sleep. But then when there's a second night, I'm like, you know, I have to watch myself. I have to just take really good care of myself because I'm going to be like fragile in that way that day. Just like having, you know, and it's it's so different to see that as like this is a normal like biological reaction that just happens for me, right? Mm-hmm. Where it doesn't necessarily mean that like I'm totally messed up, but you know, it's I feel like a lot of people out there like when you're struggling with mental health, it often it becomes much harder to sleep, to exercise, to take care of yourself. And that can become like a self-perpetuating cycle. Like it absolutely was for me. Uh, 
you know, as we talk about accomplishments and motivation, um, the topic of stillness, I'm always curious when I, when I see people, um, who are outwardly conquering the world, you know, doing amazing things. I often wonder to myself, what, what kind of a role does stillness play in their life? Is it their enemy? Is it their friend? Do they, do they struggle to just be without the to-do list and the the goals and all of that where what's your kind of experience or thoughts on that i definitely struggle with leaving the to-do list on the list and not carrying it with me every moment i feel really lucky to have a beautiful apartment with my partner that always needs something done And so I, for me, my home is my happy place. I had a Monstera emergency a few days ago where my houseplant got root rot (laughs) and I had to repot it immediately before going to the airport. Um, And, and it's like, you know, it's not, it's not still like lying flat on your back still, Mm -hmm. but, um, but it's just this peaceful place where the stakes are lower and it's about community and connection and, and being present, it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because yeah, I, I mean, I always think like I'm not going to be able to like leave my stuff at the door. Like I love working more than anything. And then sometimes I just get home and then I'm like, no, I can just be here, you yeah. know, like. I, I, I think meditative hobbies uh, is something where we're fully present. We're not ruminating on the past or, you know, having anxiety about the future. They're they're so uh, they're so. Uh, re-energizing absolutely yeah Yeah. and seeing for me like with these plants um part of it is my mom was a big gardener and i spent a lot of time like gardening with her and doing like house projects with her and so even though we are estranged now it's a way in which i kind of emotionally feel connected to her and to where i come from um and it's also so wonderful to see the plants grow and thrive Mm. and then i mean it it hurts me a lot when they, when they, I kill them, <laughs> but that's always the flip side I'm of gonna, love, right? I'm going to recommend you never get an orchid. Oh, I just throw them out when I'm done. Oh, you do? I didn't know that they could reflower. They can, they can, but it's, oh my God. Yeah. They're, uh, <laughs> I think I might qualify as an orchid serial killer. I've, oh man. Yeah. But they're so beautiful. Just treat them as disposable, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Emmy, thank you so much for coming by. Your book is called Acceptance, and uh, it's it's um, it's great. Thank it's you great. So much. And thank you for being so open and honest about uh, your life. Thank you, Paul. Really appreciate it. Really enjoy talking to her. What a uh, what a nice young woman. Do I sound like a grandpa? I don't care. I'm old enough to be a grandpa. Let's dive into some surveys. This is from the Body Shame Survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Yin Shadow. Yin as in yin and yang. What do you dislike or dislike about your body and why? I love many parts of my body when I'm even at the top of my, quote, normal weight. But then there are the other parts that are pudgy. Why can't my boobs be full of fat without the the nearby belly pudge? When I lose those few pounds, the boobs are the first to go. They are mom boobs. Your listeners who have breastfed will get this, LOL. I also hate that my mom tummy hangs over my C-section scar. When I get really thin, my tummy shows ab muscles, but then that saggy skin is there. 
I wouldn't get naked around my husband, except a couple of times a month for sex in the dark, for a few years. Once I lost the weight, I finally got the courage to get naked with him one night. Our sex life, uh, I got naked with him one night. Our sex life has been amazing ever since then, and my body responds differently to him. I think the trust, I'm, so, I'm sorry, the, the light isn't very good in here. <laughs> the light I really need to read in here has been humming lately, so I need to keep it off so uh, we don't hear a humming noise. I, listen, I'm going to email you all privately and go into more description about what's happening here because it's pretty interesting and I think you'd like to know more. Uh, I think the trust that he wouldn't find my mom body gross and the feeling of surrender made a difference. It revived our dead bedroom. I still hate my tummy, though. My sex drive got me into a bit of trouble when I fell pregnant a couple of years ago. My husband doesn't believe in abortion, but I was devastated to carry this pregnancy, afraid to gain that weight back, and for a number of other reasons. I felt so out of control and desperately wanted out of this body. I ended up binging on sweets a lot, which led to purging during the pregnancy. I feel really guilty about the binging and purging. My baby was healthy, and I know I took in enough calories, but I feel ashamed about this. I hope you can let that, that shame go, said the, the pot to the, to the kettle. But thank you, thank you for sharing that. And um, I think a lot of us, especially men, um, uh have no idea what goes on in the world of moms, especially those of us who don't have kids, have no idea what it is like in the life of a mom, especially physically. You don't, you don't see it getting talked about. Well, I suppose people are talking about stuff a lot now. Should I have not had caffeine before I started this? Is it a mistake that I'm drinking cold brew at 10.15 at night? This is a happy moments filled out by Poopy Butt Strikes Back. I think we've read surveys from uh, from her before. Uh, she writes, and this does not start out as a happy moment, but my grandma last night uh, was pretty rough. A lot of family issues. My, I'm sorry. My grandma's last Christmas was pretty rough. Um... My grandma had gone into full-blown dementia and had just entered into the dementia unit at her local nursing home. So much sadness was everywhere in my life at this point. It was so overwhelming. The night before Christmas Eve, I sat with my grandma in the commons area of the unit. She no longer knew who I was, but she knew I was family. The typical nursing home room was decorated in cheery Christmas decor and there was a sweet feeling in the air. I sat with my grandma on the couch. We held hands and watched Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory, the 70s version, a.k.a. best version. Agreed. The intro with the beautiful music and the cathartic chocolate mixing filled me with such happiness. I felt so happy being there with my grandma, knowing this would be the last time we sat together alone like this. Every year the movie comes on again around Christmas, and I thank God for giving me that pure moment of happiness. That is so beautiful and such a great example, I think, of the challenge in life is how do we find the beauty in the 
you know, quote-unquote sad, difficult. I just love that you were able to... And I hear a lot of people who spend time with dying relatives talk about how beautiful it can be. It scares the shit out of me. But I've never done it. I feel shame that I didn't go back more when my dad was dying of cancer. But I was honestly afraid. I was afraid that I was going to... I don't know what I was afraid of. So when I hear people share about being there for for somebody, I just say, my hat is fucking off to you, man. This is from the uh, Memorable Vacation Arguments survey. And this is filled out by Frankie again. Frankie, you're hogging the internet. Frankie writes, my parents divorced after 30 years. I don't have one memory of them in a tender moment or having fun together. My dad took us to California when I was 14 and my brother 16. We went to museums and paraglided and my dad did this thing. He was so concerned about his plans and maybe frugality that he didn't care that his kids were hungry. My mom was an angel, but had stopped stooping had started stooping to his level out of powerlessness, started making fun of him in the car, mocking him. My parents almost never yelled. They were more into bickering and silent treatments. My dad started yelling something like, God damn it, I'm sick of being treated like shit on a trip I paid for. That shut us up. Then we went out to eat one of the countless silent dinners of my childhood. My mom cites this trip as when she realized that his selfishness affected the kids too. How the fuck it took her that long is beyond me. When I was 11, I asked them to divorce. They believed in 70s pop psych, that divorcing irrevocably messes kids up. Guess what else does? Never getting along in front of them and modeling powerlessness while teaching them to give up easily and never offering life advice or appearing trustworthy enough to confide in. Anyway, dot, dot, dot. Thank you for that. Agreed, man. I, I... You know, and I think this applies to the survey I read before about the woman who was in the relationship with the guy that doesn't want to get sober. You throw kids in the mix and holy fuck. And holy fuck, I'm glad I'm not you. Does that sound cold? It's true. This is from the love survey filled out by Brianna. And uh, Brianna writes, I love opening my eyes and the first thing I see is my dog's face. I love the feeling of her curled up at my feet with her head resting on my ankles. I love the way she does a little dance when I sing to her. I love her placing her head on my chest and looking up at me when I'm upset. That was beautiful. Thank you for that. I'm a sucker for any... Oh, watched this YouTube video the other night of a woman, a, a tiny little koala bear had gotten tangled up in a nylon fence and this woman was had a pair of scissors and, and was cutting it... Uh, freeing it and this thing was just sitting there like it was sunbathing just like not a care in the world and i don't know there's just those those moments not only do i feel something that it that feels like it soothes anything that i've been worrying about up until then but it also makes me feel terrible about not being a vegan i like to take something awful out of everything that I can. This is from the misophonia survey, and this is filled out by um, a man who calls himself W. I've got to assume that this is uh, the ex-president. 
What noises trigger you? Mouth noises like eating, any loud noise while I'm in a bubble of isolation, the sound of my cat wanting attention when I'm in a bad mood. Is your relationship with the person or thing making the noise affected by their noises? I can sometimes quiet my annoyance and ignore the mental side effects if the source is someone I care about and I'm not in a bad mood. Are you comfortable telling people about your sound sensitivity? Usually. What have the reactions been when you've told people? Generally understanding and people sharing things they don't like to hear. Do you have other sensory sensitivities? Touch, mostly. Any imperfection or debris in a glass surface, like my phone. The feeling of the unevenly set stitching on the inside fingers in a pair of gloves. Having hair brush my face unexpectedly. Uh, How long have you had misophonia? Lifelong. How many times a day do you get triggered? Thankfully, only a few times a week. Do you feel guilty about your triggers or the way you respond to them? Frequently, yes. Have you been diagnosed with a mental or physical health disorder or issue? And if so, do you believe it's connected to your misophonia? Undiagnosed autism and undiagnosed but medicated depression. My GP prescribes me generic Lexapro. Do you have a history of trauma? There is not enough space in this infinitely expanding text box to get into it all. Have you ever experienced trauma to the ear? Ear infections as a kid. I'm prone to them after swimming. Uh, Nothing mentally traumatic, I don't think. Uh, Have you tried any kind of therapy or medication or tools for your misophonia? Not for misophonia specifically, no. Thank you for sharing that. That is another world that is, is, um, I think, so foreign to those of us that just take for granted that we're you know, we think, oh, that guy smacking his, his food is, you know, that's annoying. But you talk to somebody who has mis- misophonia, it's like, yeah, don't conflate those two. They're completely, completely different things. Uh, this is an email that I got uh, from Sex Secret. And uh, they write, hey, how are you? Just wait till you see this guy's story. No matter how hard you think you have it in the bedroom right now. If you're a man over 35, you need to see this video, since this video contains the secret we've all been waiting to find out, and it will change everything you ever thought you knew was real about. And then this is a link. It's, it, it says, how to really grow your hammer. And I don't know what that means. I don't know what they mean by that. I've got to assume that this is a hardware store. But be warned, parts of this video are a little NSFW. I don't know what that means. And perhaps you should not watch it when your GF is around. That's hard because my grandfather and I always watch stuff that we get emails and links to. And that's how we have discovered most of the porn that we enjoy watching together. Um, but we didn't clink on, (laughs) we didn't, we didn't clink on this and the wheel came off and the bit drove into a ditch. (laughs) However, after you understand this guy's amazing discovery and why he chose to make it public, you will be on your way to increasing the size of your quote boy, unquote, for as much as you wish up to seven inches. More than half of the brave men who tried it so far are at least five inches bigger. 
You can even start tonight. Five inches bigger. Five inches bigger. That There is a person out there that gets up in the morning and thinks, you know, I don't think I've really perfected the pitch for bigger dicks. I think there's just a better way of phrasing it. Hammer. I'll use the word hammer. My God, how did I overlook that? This is from the Shame and Secrets survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself McSpazitron. Big fan of her products. She identifies as asexual. She's in her 30s. She says that she was raised in a totally chaotic environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. When I was a kid, my stepdad would watch me in the bathroom while I bathed, and he would also watch me while I undressed. I also have a memory of waking up several times a night with my pajama shirt unbuttoned or my bottoms off. Another time he convinced my mother to beat me because I wouldn't uncover my bare chest for him. I was 12 when that happened and going through puberty. I've never forgiven either of them for this, but I also never talk about it. That is horrifying. And if that's not sexual abuse, I don't know what is. Uh, she's been physically and emotionally abused. My mom was a crack addict from before I was born until I was 17. My stepfather was also on drugs, but he was also a Vietnam vet with severe PTSD and a plate in his head from a closed head injury. I would get whoopings all the time with belts, extension cords, or anything else within reach. The verbal abuse was really bad too. I would get called ugly or have my weight commented on in a negative way. Any positive experiences with abusers? Yes, and it was hard because there were good days with my parents, but that made the living situation unpredictable. But we had a lot of fun, silly times as well. It's why I feel guilty sometimes about not being able to forgive. You know, my my thought on forgiveness is forgiveness either comes or it doesn't, and you can't force it. Uh, I think if we do work on ourselves and we really look inside ourselves, in, in ourselves and our patterns of behavior in the past and try to upgrade our tools and our coping mechanisms, we can see how flawed we are and not to shame ourselves, but to try to do better and maybe break out a better tool next time. I think when we do that work, for me, seeing my fallibility and how I had harmed other people helped me let go of the hate and the bitterness I had towards people who had harmed me because I was like, you know, um, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm a fucking piece of work. And that doesn't mean having contact with somebody who's toxic, but it's really nice to not actively walk around feeling hate. But I really don't like when somebody says, you should forgive this person. I, I, I do not like when people tell each other that. It would be great if you could forgive somebody, but I think it's got to be organic. I think it either comes or it doesn't. I think it's a byproduct. I'll email you guys some more details about that. You guys are going to get a lot of emails from me. Deepest, darkest thoughts. I wish I poisoned my stepdad. 
I really wish I killed him when I had the chance. I feel like because I was so young, maybe I would have gotten a lenient punishment. Darkest Secrets, the story about my mom beating me because I didn't uncover my chest. I've never been able to talk about it because it's embarrassing. I don't, I know I didn't do anything wrong, but I have a lot of shame about it. I have never told anyone else this story. Well, I thank you for, for sharing that. You know, that's one of the things that I am so grateful to um, people who fill the surveys out for is the stuff that they share especially when they're sharing it for the first time. It really, and I hope this doesn't sound like I'm being maudlin, but I I feel such a privilege for this to be the platform for people to to let that out. And I know a lot of times it can be a cathartic experience for them. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Being an asexual, I don't really have any sexual fantasies. My fantasies always just include men being really genuinely nice nice to me, LOL. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I wish I could tell my little sister I'm sorry for not better, being better at protecting her as kids because we're cool with each other but not super close, and I wish we were. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I was normal. I've been depressed and anxious since I was eight years old. I also wish I didn't have a kid because I don't know what I'm doing, and I'm afraid I'm just like my mom, and he doesn't deserve that. He's such a good and sweet kid who deserves better than me. Have you shared these things with others? No, I'm ashamed. How do you feel after writing these things down? Part of me feels like I should delete all of this because what if you read this and people think I am horrible? But the other part of me is proud that I am even able to do it without breaking down. <laughs> Must be the Lexapro, LOL. You should be proud of yourself, you know? A lot of people live their entire lives never stopping and turning around and looking into the jaws of the monster and the cycle of abuse just gets perpetuated it's the easiest thing in the world and and understandable to to just turn around and run whether it's into addictions or just repeating the behaviors of our parents or abusers but just writing it down is is a is a great first step and I want to give you a high five, and you do not sound like a horrible person. You sound like a a really cool, sensitive person who went through some fucking shit, and it really affected your ability to trust and be intimate, and how could it not? Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences, just that you're not a weirdo or a freak, and you're not alone. You'd be surprised who can relate to you. Amen. Amen. Any comments to make the podcast better? Not really. I'm a black woman, and I like that you have black people on. Maybe have more black women on, or see if you can interview some teens, question mark. But this podcast has gotten me through some rough times, and I appreciate how you will talk about things most people won't. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. And you sound like you would be a good guest if you ever find yourself in the... Uh, Los Angeles area, but that also sounds like, uh, I mean, you just wrote that stuff out for the first time. That might be <laughs> like, hey, you enjoy holding, swinging that bat? Hey, how about coming uh, and uh, playing baseball publicly with an audience? This is from the Happy Moments survey filled out by a woman who calls herself, I believe we've read her sur surveys as well, seven out of 10 on a good day. One or two uh, happy moments. I put my hand on my cat's paw and she flexed her paw to hold mine with her little claws and looked at me so lovingly. 
Knowing her little life is happy because of me makes me feel like a good person. I love when I work a morning shift and I get off and it's still light outside. And I drive home and get a coffee and the day feels young and the air feels clean and the sun is shining through my car window and I'm happy to be alive. Love it. Love it. I I don't know if any of you are like this, but I hate getting up early, but I love the morning. I love the light in the morning. I just can't get out of bed. But like when you're driving it, 6 30 in the morning and that sun's just creeping up and you got a cup of coffee it's it's just is it because you feel like you're getting a jump on the day and you're not the, the lazy piece of shit that you always call yourself i don't know i don't know i, I imagine a lot of you feel the, the same way and then finally these are some uh, some loves and this is filled out by egg girl She writes, I love when the brown sugar on my oatmeal still crunches in my mouth. I love how my three-year-old son says, don't interrupt me when he is bothered while sleeping. I love when I'm in a black depression and I hear birdsong at a weird hour and it makes me realize that how I'm feeling isn't right. I love waking up from a good dream. I love when the toast comes out just right on the first push. I love the part after fighting with my husband where we both have worked hard to get somewhere useful and we hug and that hardness I had felt in him is gone and he wraps his whole self around me and I feel safe enough to do the same. Oh, that's really beautiful. I love warm paper from the printer. I love when the salad dressing starts to thicken up. I love taking a nap when it's raining outside. Oh, I love this one. I love smelling that it's about to snow. That's, that is something that people in the Southwest are probably not familiar with, but as a, as a Midwesterner, oh. And I, and I think, of course, one of the classics is when the streets are wet after an afternoon thunder shower in the summer, and you can see steam coming off the pavement. I love making my three-year-old laugh hysterically with some totally dumb joke, so I know it's just us in this tiny moment losing our minds over the words poop trash, and neither of us will ever recover from how hilarious it is, so we say it over and over until we have tears streaming down our faces, and I love the satisfied silence that comes right afterward. That is so awesome. That is so awesome. Man, you know, I've been doing this podcast 12 years and I don't think, you know, when, when people have shared favorite memories of being with a parent, I don't know if I've ever read one where they're describing something that a parent bought them, but 90% of the ones that they describe are moments where their parents being silly or paying attention to them, uh, making each other laugh, or you know, taking them out of school for a day to go do something fun, to go fish together, and I just, I just love reading those moments, picturing you and your kid laughing, laughing together. For those of us who were raised in homes where there was not a lot of laughter, um, it, it, uh, I can't imagine. 
what it's like. I suppose we laughed a bit in my house. Maybe I just never laughed, but around my family, I laughed around my friends. Anyway, I'll email you guys the details of this because it's start it's starting to get a little bit long. It's in my dissertation, which you will get a copy of once uh, the committee uh, <laughs> validates my dissertation. What's the verb you would use if your dissertation gets accepted, passed, graded? Rejected? I don't know. I had too much caffeine. What time is it? 10.40? Let's go watch a documentary. If you're out there and you're feeling stuck, never forget that you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Oh, Gracie. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.